How's everyone doing? Good. Good to see you all. Turn to Mark chapter 12. We're starting in verse 13. And they sent to Jesus some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and Lord, we want to acknowledge that you are omniscient, that you know all things. You know the future, you know the present, you know the past, you know what it is, what is and what could be and what will be. We thank you, God, that you're in control of all things. We thank you that you know what's best for us. Lord, we pray for our nation as we pre prepare for a presidential election that you would guide the hearts of the people of this country. We pray, Lord, against any civil unrest in these days, in the days following the election. We pray for peace in Philadelphia right now, God. We pray, Lord, that the church would be salt and light in such a time as this. You've prepared us for such a time, Lord. Let us shine. And Lord, open up um, our ears to hear from your spirit this morning through your word. It is truth, and we submit unto you and unto your word. Amen. Last week was part one of my uh, election sermon, and we looked about the different spheres of government. There's the state government, there's the family government, and what's the last one? Church government. Good. Just making sure you all were listening. So there's those three spheres, and we looked at those, and we also talked about the importance of realizing that though we have a president and different countries um, have presidents or kings or elected officials, we ultimately as believers have a true king, and his name's Jesus. And so um, regardless of what happens in, in the coming days, um, Jesus will still be on the throne. Uh, we're not voting to keep him there or knock him off. Praise the Lord. Um, we might try at times in our flesh to do so, um, but he's not going anywhere. Praise the Lord. And so um, that was kind of part one to emphasize the broader picture of what God has given to us, what he's commanded us to do in those different spheres, and to remind us that we just need to have a big view of who God is and what he's doing, even in the midst of of this election that's coming up. So part two is, is going to be looking at some of the more uh, finer points. You know, 
Most fairy tales start once upon a time. Do you know how a politician starts his fairy tale? If elected, I promise. (laughs) (laughs) So the question I want to begin with today um, is, what do we owe the government? Because Jesus makes it clear here in Mark that we have things to render to Caesar, right? In fact, by the very fact that he says there's something to render, he's emphasizing what we saw in Genesis last week, that civil government has a rightful place. There are things to render to Caesar. There are things to render to God. Last week, we saw Romans 13, some of the things we render to Caesar. Um, Financial support, taxes. Honor and respect, it says at the end of Romans 13 and verse 17. We're supposed to render honor and respect in that context, to our civil authorities. Here's the thing. What you render to Caesar is limited. Here's what one theologian said. When you know that all is God's, then anything you render to Caesar, you will render for God's sake. Any authority you ascribe to Caesar, you will ascribe to him for the sake of God's greater authority. Any obedience you render to Caesar, you will render for the sake of the obedience you owe first to God. Any claim Caesar makes on you, you test by the infinitely higher claim God has on you. And this is similar to what we see in 1 Peter chapter 2. It says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. But notice the first part of those two verses. Be subject for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. So what you render to Caesar is for the Lord's sake. And stepping back for a moment to the bigger picture, because I want to keep emphasizing that, we have a coin to render to Caesar, but... The more important thing is, is that each one of us is God's coin. Think about it for a moment. You're God's coin. Why? Because the coin that we rendered to Caesar, whose image is on that? Caesar's, right? So, to take it one step further, uh, we have an image, right? We have the image of God stamped on us. We're God's coin. So we might be a nickel, a dime, a quarter, but whatever you are, you are God's coin. And you can't render to Caesar from that account. You're God's coin. What image and likeness do you bear? The image of God. So it's to him that you render not certain things like taxes, not certain actions, but you actually render your entire self. He owns you. You're bought with a price. You can render your property, your income, whatever else to the Caesars of this world. But God and God alone, he has stamped you, his coin, with his image. You can't render that to Caesar. So what we render to Caesar, it pales, think about this, it pales in comparison to what we render to God. God requires a complete rendering of the entire self. So whatever Caesar asks, it has to be seen in the context of what God is requiring. This is why, if you think about it for a moment, this is why the theory of evolution is such a big deal. 
it's actually a jurisdictional claim. We talked about the spheres last week. You could call it um, a, a sphere issue. Who has jurisdiction over humans? If we evolved over billions of years, then, then we're simply our own jurisdiction, the highest we can get. The, the theory of evolution, it says that life goes from goo to the zoo to you. And God's not needed in this equation. He's not. That theistic evolution, some people try to purport, that doesn't make sense. The evolutionist says X plus Y plus Z equals life. The theistic evolutionist says X plus Y plus Z plus zero equals life. What's the zero? That's God. You, you see how active he is in evolution? No, that's the point. He's not active. He adds nothing to the equation. If you remove God from the equation of evolution, you still have evolution. You don't need God. It's an unguided process. It's random chance. God adds nothing to the equation when it comes to evolution. He's not needed. So think about it. If we weren't made in the image of God, which is what evolution would purport, I mean, whom do we appeal to? We can appeal to the highest level of authority that exists. We can, that's what we can do. And what does that mean? We have no appeal beyond Caesar. That's the highest we can go in that worldview. If there is no God above Caesar, as one theologian said, then Caesar is God. If there is a God in heaven and he has placed his image on us, then this absolutely requires the biblical concept of limited government. Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. So what is our role in a sphere God has limited and made clear only certain things are rendered? Well, look at 1 Chronicles chapter 12. It's going through the mighty men that joined David in 1 Chronicles 12. Then it starts to go through the tribes. And in verse 32, it notes something interesting. It says, 1 Chronicles 12, 32, Of Issachar, men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. They had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. All the other tribes, nothing like that is made. But this one particular tribe was called out for their understanding. Part of what this means is, quite plainly, we need to know the times. What might have worked 10 or 20 years ago might not work today. We have to understand the times we live in so we know what will be effective strategies, tactics, and reaching people for Christ and being a witness, and loving our neighbor. Things that the church was doing 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, might not work in this particular context today. There needs to be different strategies and tactics to reach people with the gospel. Let's be clear. We're still reaching them with the gospel. That doesn't change. The manner in which we go about doing it can and should. So we want to know what to do. Uh, we want to know our place in history because to know our place in history means 
something really important. We have to know our history. Think about socialism for a moment. Why is that becoming popular? I mean, think about that. I mean, we assumed, uh, us in the older generations, we lived and, and saw what socialism did in other countries. That's been buried. It hasn't been as apparent. It's been hidden. We have to know our history. We assume from looking around at other countries how it affected them is pretty obvious is a bad idea. We assume that our kids were being trained in that area about economics. Bad assumption. And part of us knowing the times is it can be challenging because wading into the different things of this world, I mean, it's like, you know, going into the pit of despair in The Princess Bride. It's not going to be fun. It's going to be painful. And so we have to be sure not to be stained by the filth that we'll, we'll encounter. So we want to know the times, and part of that is knowing what to do and knowing how to proceed. The, when you think about um, most people here, many people here, have a liberal arts education of some sort. You know where that came from? Actually came from Roman times. In liberal, when I first got saved, I was like, oh, I'm getting a, a liberal arts degree. I don't want, I want a conservative arts degree. <laughs> that's what I, that's the context I had, liberal and conservative. Now, the liberal arts, that just comes from the Latin word liber, which means free. And the Romans <clears throat> and the Greeks, they had a concept that they wanted the people, their citizens, to be well-educated. Why? So that they could be good citizens and do their civic duty. And they believed in order to do that, they needed to be well-educated in a variety of topics. So the idea behind the liberal education <clears throat> was to give the citizens of Rome information on various subjects. That's why when, when you go to you know, high school, and especially when you go to college, you have general education requirements. You know, what does biology have to do with a journalism degree? Well, maybe it's not really directly tied together, but if you wanted to be, you know, somewhat versed in different areas, it can help you, whatever field you're in, to at least have a basic understanding of other fields. Expert in one particular field, there's, you know, computer programmers here, there's engineers here, and, and they need to refine their craft and, and know it well. Doctors, they need to refine their craft and know it well. But to have, you know, uh, a general education on a variety of topics, why? So that they can understand certain things about economics, like capitalism, like socialism. Abraham Kuyper, talking about government, said, in any successful attack on freedom, the state can only be an accomplice. The chief culprit is a citizen who forgets his duty, wastes away his strength in the sleep of sin and sen sensual pleasure, and so loses the power of his own initiative. Because some people will say that, you know, government is evil, government is evil. You know, some Christians argue we shouldn't have anything to do with the civil government. Our involvement should be zero. 
the challenge is, that's really saying all governments everywhere at all times are evil. That's not true. Uh, no government is perfect. All government is fallen. Why? Because it's run by fallen man. We live in a fallen world. Are certain governments evil? Absolutely. Are certain governments imperfect? No, they're all imperfect. But the answer isn't to abolish the government. God instituted it. He instituted the civil government. So the answer isn't to abolish it. In fact, it's almost impossible to really do that. Even anarchy is a form of government. But the answer isn't to abolish it, but to reform it. Society will always have a form of government. The question is, how lawful or lawless will that government be? Um, Think of the church for a moment. What happened to the church over centuries? Became corrupted. And the light of the gospel appeared to be just a mere candle flickering in the darkness. And the church had made that flicker almost unnoticeable. But what was the answer? Reform. Reform, right? What do we call people who reform? Reformers. Yesterday was Reformation Day. October 31st, 1517. What do you think about Luther's cause? I think he nailed it. (laughs) He nailed those 95 theses to the church door. It was a call to reform. The original reformers tried to work within the church at the time, right? Remember, Rome kicked out Luther. Luther didn't leave Rome. They kicked him out. And, and there's a reason that we're all called Protestants. Okay? It's because we were protesting. Let's just be clear. We're the original protesters, all right? Just think about that. We're the original protesters. We're protesting what? The loss of the light of the gospel. It had become corrupted by the church and transformed into another gospel like Galatians talks about, a different gospel. So we look to reform as much as possible. You do this with the church as far as possible. You do this with the government as far as possible. The concept of the state government in and of itself is instituted by God. He thought up the concept of the state. He thought up the concept of the church. He thought up the concept of the family. These things are from God. And God is a good God, and what he does is good. So designing these three institutions means these institutions in and of themselves are good. Can individual governments be corrupt, wicked, and evil? Absolutely. Not the concept itself. God doesn't institute evil. Last week, I talked about being under authority and submitting to that authority. It's a very important concept, especially in today's day and age. I did want to note a few things. Each of these three institutions has limited, limited, limited authority. All earthly authority is limited, and no authority can override God's ultimate authority. So no authority can command you to sin. If they do, you can and you should disobey. 
If they overreach their authority, you can appeal. If there is an abuse of authority in the family, you can appeal. You can appeal to the church. You can appeal to the state. If there's an abuse of authority in the church, you can appeal. You can appeal to the family. You can appeal to the state. There is always a process of appeal. Ultimately, before us, we have to obey God. It doesn't matter what the church might say, what the family might say, what the state might say. To God and God alone is our primary allegiance. Look at Acts chapter 5. The apostles are arrested in Acts chapter 5, then they're, then they're freed. It starts in verse 27, when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. So, two conflicting authorities. God's authority, and in this case, well, it's almost like the state and the church because of the way that it was set up in, in uh, Jerusalem. But that's limited. God's authority, ultimate. The council's authority, limited. God's authority will always trump the institutions he's put in place. So, those institutions, each one of them, the family, the church, and the state, it can err, it does err, it will err. Our allegiance is to God and to his word. John Bunyan, many of you have heard of him. You remember what book he wrote? The first one most people remember is Pilgrim's Progress. He was in prison. Most people think he was in prison for preaching the gospel. That's partially true. He was actually in prison for preaching the gospel without a license. Back then, without getting into it, you had a license. A, you literally had to have a license to preach the gospel. Now, you could say to John, you know, John, why don't you just go down to the Department of Preaching Licenses, you know, and just pick one of those up for yourself so you could just go about your merry way. The issue for, for John was lawful authority. Did the state, did the church have the right to limit the preaching of the gospel? Did he make the right call? Well, that's a different topic for a different time. But here's the thing, and what I want to note. We assume that if the authorities tell us to do anything short of swearing an oath to Satan, we must comply. That is not a mature theology of resistance. Uh, my <clears throat> good friend John MacArthur and he's really not a good friend. I just, you know, read about him. <laughs> There's a news headline just uh, this past week. Here's the news headline. Coronavirus outbreak strikes L.A. megachurch that defied public health orders. That, that was it. Obviously, it's talking about MacArthur's church. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Like, how many people got it? You know, so I, I click on... The article, it starts, an evangelical megachurch in Los Angeles that has defied L.A. County public health orders and held indoor worship services for the last several weeks 
has been struck with an outbreak of the coronavirus, public health officials confirmed Thursday. Now, how many people do you think are going to make it past the title of the article and the first paragraph? You know, they've done studies on it. Most people just read the title, you know. Uh, the vast majority don't make it past the first paragraph. Second paragraph, Grace Community Church in Sun Valley has seen three confirmed cases, according to the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. Three people out of 7,000. Like, stop the presses, right? Friends, Liberty Church, well, apparently we've had an outbreak of the coronavirus, okay? <laughs> because we've had more than just three people in this church get the virus, okay? And last time I checked, we're, we're running just a little bit shy of 7,000 people, all right? They're not writing articles about us, not yet. <clears throat> There's an agenda. There's an agenda. <clears throat> and here's the thing. There's a place for standing up and pushing back. There is a place for it. And that's what we've seen some churches do in various states. Why now? Because here's the thing. If you wait to stand up until it's the absolute last straw, you'll find out you don't have any footing to stand on. So I believe, in part, that MacArthur is looking at the options, and he's, and he's seeing it like on a line graph, so to speak. So if, if over here is like, hey, you know, what our civil government is asking us to do, it's really not that rough. I think we can do that. We're not probably happy over here. And then over here is like, we're about to haul you to prison just because you're saying Jesus' name, right? So there's a continuum. And he's saying we're right about maybe here or maybe even here. But there's a continuum. And the question is, and we each have to answer it, as a church, as individuals, at what point, would resistance be something that we need to do? So he's looking at it, and if you think about it like the alphabet, A, B, C, D, all the way to Z, do you say at the letter G, yet yeah, now's the time? Or do you wait till you're at Q? Or do you wait till you're at Y? E, e, right? Are you guys hearing me? Yeah. This is important. If you wait till Y, um, Z will happen. Let me put it in the context of, like, <clears throat> um, parents and children, all right? Your, your child comes to you, and, you know, he wants, to do, he wants to do A, this A thing, okay? And you're like, oh, it's not that big a deal. We're back on the continuum, and A is not really that bad, but, okay, well, you know, pick your battles, right? So you let him do A. Then he, and he comes and, and wants to do, you know, whatever, a week, a month later, he wants to do B. And you're like, okay, well, it's B. Well, we're going to, you know, pick your battles. So then C, D, E, right? And at some point, what, what some parents do is, you know, it's like S for them is the stopping point. Well, if S is the stopping point, you can't wait till you get to R to be like, no. Because once you get to R, they're going to be like, Mom, Dad, you let us do A through R, and now you're just not going to let us do S? It's just one step away from S. What's the big deal? You've kind of lost it. So you've got to pick the point at which you're going to stand up and say, no more. No more. No more. And so John MacArthur, wherever he thinks that continuum is, he hasn't made it um, clear that I'm aware of, but, I mean, there's a continuum, and somewhere in that alphabet and somewhere on that line, he's reached that point and said, no more. 
I respect that. Even if I might disagree with him, which I don't, but even if I did, I respect that he feels like he's at this particular letter and it's time to say no more. And friends, um, if we wait until our last freedom is about to be taken away, we won't have the freedom to do anything about it. You know, John Welch, uh, one of John Knox's daughters, John Knox was a great preacher. One of his daughters was named Elizabeth, and she married a great preacher, John Welch. He was exiled to France for many years for his biblical views. And his doctors told him um, he'd have to return to England for his health to get the proper care. So Elizabeth Knox Welch, she came to the court of King James to seek permission for him to return. <clears throat> the king, he, he discovers that um, Mrs. Welch was a daughter of John Knox. Um, he exclaims in her presence, you know, because both Knox and Welch had kind of created some fits for the king. He says, Knox and Welch, the dev- devil never made such a match as that. To which the woman replied, it's right like, sir, for we never asked his advice. <laughs> but she's in front, of the, uh, in front of the king, and she's told by the king that her husband could return to England if he would submit to the bishop. And she, she slightly lifts, lifts her apron as if to catch something and says, please, your majesty, I'd rather receive his head there. She was on board. She was ready to take the stand that her husband had already taken. Friends, all of the duties that fall upon us, regardless of what institution it is, the family, the church, the state, all of those duties really fall under the idea of us working that out as children of God. It applies whether you're a child of God or not, but for us believers... We act from that foundation. That's our foundation. Blood-bought children of God. So as parents, the duties we have are grounded in the foundation that, like, we're children of God. We're going to act from that foundation. And as employees, we're going to, the duties we have, we're going to act from the foundation that we're children of God. The same with a spouse. The duties we have, we're going to be acting from the foundation that we're children of God. We operate in each of those different spheres, but we're operating as children of God. Our actions in those spheres should align with the fact that we are children of God, which means we're walking out the word of God. Do we have a civic duty? You know, we're strangers and aliens in this world, but we're still citizens of this world. We're dual citizens, as I mentioned last week. And God places us under the civil government. That means we have duties to that sphere. What is our civic duty? Well, Jeremiah 29 says this in verse 7, as they're getting ready to be exiled to a country that's not their own, it says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. So they're, they're, they're the aliens and the foreigners, like literally, just not metaphorically, but literally. And Seek the welfare of the city where I sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Then it says in Isaiah, the very first chapter of Isaiah, learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the cause of the widow. Where do you do this? 
I mean, like just in church, that'd be kind of weird. This makes no sense if Isaiah is saying, you know, when you're at the temple, make sure you seek justice and, and encourage uh, the oppressed. But if you see your neighbor acting contrary to these things, that's okay because you're not at the temple. No. It's like everywhere do these things. One theologian said, there is no escape from responsibility by pointing out the imperfections of leaders. That is the only kind of leaders there will ever be. Our calling in this world is not to wait for the arrival of the perfect, but to pick our way through the thicket of flaws. We would be arrogant to put ourselves above this fray and say, a curse on both your houses. Voting is the minimum of our civic duty. I mean, who do you want to rule over you? We're pretty blessed. We get to choose every single one of our elected officials. You see what I did there? Of course we choose them because they're elected. <laughs> we don't get to choose any of the appointed officials. But we do get to choose every single one of our elected officials. And we have a lot of them. We get to vote for the collector of revenue. I mean, you know, obviously she, she collects the revenue. Every few years, I'm voting for the collector of revenue. And guess what? When I pay my property taxes, guess who you write the check to? Her. You just put her name. I'm like, wow. Talk about the opportunity for some abuse there. Man. <clears throat> we, by and large, get to choose the people who rule over us. That's a privilege. It's also a responsibility. David Platt, many of you heard of him, pastor. He says this, yet the civic practice of voting can be described simply as judging what goods should be promoted or preserved and which public servants would most faithfully carry out that mandate. Notice this basic obligation holds true regardless of the level or topic. From local school board elections to presidential campaigns and from municipal concerns to statewide referenda on social issues, by voting, we perform the minimum of our civic duty by electing, respecting, and empowering those public servants who give their full attention to governing. I can't be fully involved in, in state government. Most of you can't either. Some people can. We choose from those who decide to run. We choose from them who we think will do the best, who will do the righteous. And, you know, some people say, you know, does my vote even matter? That's like such an American thing to say. It's so individualistic. It's not the proper way to think about any communal activity. You know, like, why recycle? Because my effort alone won't make a difference. What's my little, you know, what's my little cup going to do if I throw that away? Why make a charitable gift? My effort alone won't amount to much. No, it's the combined efforts of Christians that can make a huge impact when taken together. But to accomplish this, you can't think of your actions through an indiv individualistic lens. Uh, years ago, we had the flood uh, back in the 90s, you know, the two of them. But the great one, I mean, this uh, troop I was a part of, we spent hours and hours and hours sandbagging and trying to protect, uh, we were down in uh, St. Genevieve, trying to protect different towns, literally, from being flooded. Now, what if we just said to ourselves, uh, I mean, what's, you know, five or six 
uh, teenage boys going to be able to do to stop this great flood that is coming? Well, no, yeah, five or six, no, but five or six here and five or six there and, five or, and pretty soon you have hundreds. Well, you can save the town, right? It's the same concept. Individually, not so much. Collectively, very much so. What about disqualifications for office? There are numerous single issues that disqualify a person from public office. Numerous ones. Um, I grabbed some examples from uh, another theologian. Any candidate who endorsed bribery as a form of government efficiency would be disqualified. Any person who endorsed corporate fraud disqualified. Any person who said uh, a black person couldn't hold office disqualified. Any person that said rape is only a misdemeanor disqualified. Okay? Everybody knows a single issue for them. Each one of you have certain single issues that would disqualify in your mind a candidate for office. It might be some of those examples. There might be other ones. But certain position a candidate might hold, I would say, can disqualify them for office, including the ones I cited. You, each one of you, has to decide what those issues are for you. What do you think disqualifies a person from holding public office? And then if a candidate holds that particular view, you can't vote for them by your own guidelines that you've set. The other thing I want to I want to address is imagine for a moment if there's a politician running and he said if I win I will give every conservative Bible believing church 1 million dollars. That's bribery, okay? <laughs> That's bribery. But you can't be selfish with your vote. You know, it's like this demographic over here, like the unions, you know, it's like, oh, the, you know, this party is for the union, so I'm a part of a union, so I got to, you know, you can't look out for, you know, number one. You have to look out for what Jesus told us, love God and love your neighbor. What is going to be doing with your vote to love your neighbor? Not love yourself, but love your neighbor. We can't sell our vote. What are the person's policies? Are they upright policies? Do they support things that honor God? What does the word of God say about? Fill in the blank. Whatever those different positions are, do they square with it? One person was being interviewed just the other week, uh, a, a demographic for a voting block, and he said we need to get something for our vote. I disagree with that. That's a very selfish view, in my opinion. We should be saying, how can we love our neighbor? How can we love our neighbor? Friends, our vote will always be for sinful people. It will always be for imperfect parties. No candidate is perfect, far from it. No party is perfect, far from it. But when you're voting, you're voting for others. I mean, you're voting... For a particular person, 
But what I really mean is by casting that ballot, you're voting for a candidate who will pass policies, uphold policies, or end policies that in some way help people or hurt people. So how do policies by a particular person or party support biblical principles and help your neighbor? Not help you, help your neighbor. Who would you rather vote for? A born-again believer who had horrible policies that you disagreed with, had a track record of carrying out those horrible policies, or a secular atheist who had policies that you wholeheartedly agree with and had a track record of carrying out those policies. I ask this to point out two things. One, being a believer doesn't earn you the right to my vote or any believer's vote. Two, not being a believer doesn't mean I can't vote for you. Three, we're looking to vote for people that will encourage, promote, and protect good and godly policies. We're also looking to vote for people that will discourage and stop and end bad policies. Friends, I'd like to call for our church to a fast this Tuesday. From when you wake up in the morning until 7 o'clock that evening, I'd like for us as a church to come before the Lord and, and literally beseech him, beg him, request of him, ask him to have mercy on our nation. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. And let's pray that he would give us godly, principled leaders at every level, from the lowest to the top, that he would give us what we need, not what we deserve. So I'm calling you to join me in doing that on Tuesday. Friends, even if the person you don't want to get elected is elected, we, we, we still have to walk in love and mercy and peace. It's possible to have joy regardless of who gets elected. Because, listen, believers around the world have been under some of the worst regimes and the gospel has still burned bright. So must we. So we're going to wake up, maybe going to bed Tuesday, waking up Wednesday, we'll have an idea, maybe we'll know. We'll have an idea of where our presidential election is headed. And maybe the person uh, you wanted to get elected, it doesn't look like they will be. Um, friends, please tell me your hope is not so much an election that if the other party wins, your hopes and dreams and life itself will be crushed. If so, then you have put too much hope in man and too much hope in politics and too much hope in America. And you have a very low view of God. If the other party that you don't want to win gets elected, uh, can God still rule as he pleases? Will he rule as he pleases? Will his plans be thwarted? Will he say, now, how did that guy get into office? My polling numbers must have been off. <laughs> like, we serve a much bigger God than any election, 2020 included. 
And we do ourselves a disservice to think like, oh, America 2020, it's like, you know, make it or break it. Um, God will decide when the end comes. And if we're going to be a part of that, he'll walk us through it. It might not be pretty, it might not be fun, but he's going to be there every step of the way. And our brothers and sisters in other countries, they've set the example of how to go. Our brothers and sisters in the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, they've set the example of how we need to walk. But we serve a very big God. This election and every election should serve to remind you your Savior is not in a mere man. It's not in a country. It's not in politics. Friends, you have a citizenship in heaven, Philippians 3.20. That's where your citizenship is. I mean, that's, that's the one I'm counting on. That's the one I'm banking on. This citizenship of the world, of the U.S., it's nothing compared to what we have in heaven. And God's coming back. He's coming back to redeem his people. The completion and fulfillment of the rescue plan before the beginning of time. I pray and hope that each one of you will be prepared for that day. That's the true election day, <laughs> if you want to think about it. <clears throat> That's the day the sheep and the goats will be separated. That's the day that truly matters, if you want to talk about election. So let's do what the scriptures say. Let's make sure our own election is sure before the Lord. Let's pray. I'll have the worship team come on up. Father, we come before you. We want to confess our sins, our failings this past week, this past month, today, God, where we've fallen short. Lord, give us a spirit and a heart of repentance. Give us a love for our brothers and sisters. whose views we, we know don't match up with ours. Help us to walk in unity as the body of Christ, even if we disagree on certain things. We do thank you, Jesus. You say in Galatians, you talk about no male, no female. No Greek, no Jew. Like we're one in Christ. It's because of you, Jesus, we can walk in unity with one another. And Lord, I pray you'd use, not that America is anything special, but use this election to further your kingdom, to further your gospel, to bring you glory. Use this election to wake up from sloth, the unbeliever, Republican and Democrat alike. Lord, bring people to know you. Show people the silliness of putting their hope in any party, in any man. 
and direct them to the hope that's in you through your son, Jesus. I pray for each member of Liberty. Give us wisdom. Let us walk as the men of Issachar to know the times. Give us wisdom and discernment. Let us vote righteously. Let us vote to honor you. Let us vote in good conscience before you. And Lord, as, as citizens of, of this county, of this state, of this nation, Lord, let us be citizens who serve well our local magistrates and pray for them and love them. Be glorified in our midst today and this week, Lord, for your glory. Amen.